modern Stoics talk a lot about virtues, but the word virtue uh, comes from the Latin virtus, and virtus was in fact the translation of arete, which is the Greek word, the original Greek word. And as you said, it means excellence. And in fact, arete doesn't mean just moral excellence, it means excellence of any kind. You want, for instance, you know, if you have a knife in your kitchen, you want a knife that is an arete knife, meaning a knife that cuts very sharply, you know, and does its job correctly. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast. My name is Ron Duran Jr., and I will be your blacksmith as we explore the world of adversity and doing hard things. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Massimo Pellucci has a PhD in evolutionary biology from the University of Connecticut and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Tennessee. He has published over 135 technical papers in science and philosophy. He became a popularizer of Stoicism and one of the driving forces in Stoicism resurgence in the United States in the early 21st century. His 2015 essay for the New York Times on this topic was one of the most shared articles to date. Today, we go deep into the philosophy of Stoicism as a possible philosophy of life for you. I hope you enjoy this fun conversation as much as I did. Massimo, thank you for joining me today. I'm pretty excited to talk about Stoicism with you because you are the first guest I've had on this podcast that really is a subject matter expert in this area. I'm a student of the philosophy, although I would say I'm, I'm a beginner, and I use it as the basis for my philosophy of life. I was introduced to your work through your book, How to Be a Stoic, Using Ancient Philosophy to Live a Modern Life. And I think that's a wonderful book. It's one of the books that when students ask me about Stoicism, they say, hey, can you recommend a good book to get started? Uh, It's usually one of the ones that that I go to. So it's a wonderful book. If uh, you find this podcast intriguing, which I I think you will, you might want to go check out Massimo's book there. So before we jump into Stoicism, let's start a little more broadly. What did it mean in antiquity to study philosophy? Um, what was the purpose of, of people studying philosophy, Massimo? Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you. So first of all, thanks for the, the kind words about the book. Yeah, it's a good question. So for, this, for the ancient Greeks and Romans, philosophy was really the study of how to live your life. And Presumably, there is no more important thing to do than to figure out how do you want to live your life, because literally everything else follows out from from that. So philosophy is an art of living, in a sense, and that, in fact, fact is a phrase that has been used even by modern scholars like uh, the French scholar Pierre Hadot, who was one of those people back in the 90s who was instrumental in bringing back up interests into Stoicism and, and similar philosophies. So the basic question is, although philosophy can also be devoted to the study of nature and to the study of other things, like, you know, that used to be called natural philosophy and today it's called science, but especially for Socrates and his followers and the Stoics were in fact followers of Socrates, the most important thing you could do with philosophy is to address issues of ethics and what we today call moral and political philosophy. So how to live your life, how to build a society where we thrive and we do well. 
And, and I feel like when I hear that, I feel like this is morphed into what the self-help, self-development, you know, kind of that, that culture. I mean, and, and there's plenty of that going around, but I also feel like just in the terms of philosophy, I feel like we've lost that. You know, if you, if you just did a poll, if I polled a hundred people on the street, do you study philosophy? I would say, I would say probably 95 of them would say, no, is that a problem? I mean, all the things you said sound pretty intriguing, right? How do we live a better life? Have we lost that? Have we lost that in modern society or has it just morphed into something else? I think it is morphed into something else, but but to some extent it is it is too bad. And I think we should go back to the example of the Greek and Romans. For one thing, any anyone who says that they don't have a philosophy of life, they literally don't know what they're talking about because they probably do have a philosophy of life. At the very least, they follow a religion. Most people I grew up in a religious household of some sort, you know, some degree of religiosity. And religions are a type of philosophy of life. They have the three components that I think are fundamental for a philosophy of life. Number one, they have a metaphysics. That's an account of how the world works. Number two, they have an ethics. That's an account of how we should live in the world. And number three, they have practices that would help us translate that ethics into day-to-day living. So for instance, I grew up uh, Roman Catholic, obviously, because I grew up in Italy. And, you know, if you're Roman Catholic, then you have a metaphysics, which says, among other things, that God created the universe and that, that he's omnipotent, all-powerful, all, you know, all, all good, et cetera, et cetera. We have an ethics, which is the Ten Commandments, the teachings of Jesus, and so on and so forth. And then there's a, pra- a set of practices. You pray, you read scriptures, you go to church, and things like that, right? So everyone, regardless of whether they realize it or not, have a philosophy of life. Usually, although not always, that philosophy of life is is in the form of a religion. Even non-religious people have a philosophy of life, often explicitly so. If you recognize yourself as a secular humanist, for instance, or or, uh, some variation thereof, well, that's a philosophy of life. And even if you don't actually recognize any religion or philosophy, you probably still behave in a certain way and have certain patterns of thinking about how you should behave, at least implicitly. And that is a philosophy of life. Now, why is that problematic? Well, what is problematic about all of this is that a lot of people just take all of this on board without examination. And as Socrates famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Now, he may have been exaggerating a little bit. I think that even the unexamined life may be worth living. Uh, But it certainly makes it better if you do examine it. In other words, if, if at least occasionally you stop and and reflect on, you know, what are my priorities in life? Why am I acting a certain way? What makes me and and my loved ones happy? You know, that sort of stuff. And so from time to time, at least it's worth pause, reflect, question whether you're the the kind of philosophy or, or religion that you automatically have inherited from your parents actually works for you or whether maybe it's time to make some changes. Mm, that's a good way to put it. I also agree. You have a philosophy of life and a lot of times you just don't have intent behind it. Maybe you could argue and say, Hey, it works fine for me. Why change it? But, but I think, you know, we get one shot at this and, and to have some intent behind how we want to show up in the world, I think is important. And, and that really has been a guiding principle for me in, in certainly the last five or six years. So, you know, let, let's start and, with and this. Even, you know, so even if, you, if somebody says, well, that's worked out for me, that means that they thought about it. 
<laughs> that means that, that that's a good point. Can, uh, that's a good well, point. Why did it work out for you? And they presumably are able to explain to you why. That means that they thought about it. At some, good point. At least at some level. <laughs> so I guess ignorance. If you're totally ignorant to the idea that you have a philosophy, like, I guess that maybe that's the worst case scenario. And, and I don't know. Um, that's just that's what I would throw out there. I don't think that's a good way to live life. But let's talk about the let's let's move into Stoicism here. Give us a little bit of historical background of how did Stoicism come to be. Well, Stoicism is a Greek-Roman philosophy that started around the end of the 4th century before the current era, so 300 or so BCE. It was established in Athens by a fellow named his modern-day Cyprus. Zeno was a merchant, and he had uh, gone to Athens to sell his wares, but unfortunately for him, or probably fortunately for him as it turned out, he experienced a shipwreck and he, he, he lost everything that he had. So he arrived in Athens. And of course, what would you do if you survived the shipwreck? The first thing you do naturally is to go to a bookstore, which is what Zeno did. And and once he was in the bookstore, he heard the uh, bookseller uh, reading out loud the memorabilia, which is a book about Socrates by Xenophon, who was an Athenian general. And uh, Zeno was so taken by the memorabilia that he, he, he interrupted the bookseller and said, where can I get me one of these people, meaning a philosopher? And Athens being the place that it was in the fourth century BCE, the bookseller said, oh yeah, there is one out there walking right now. So you know, just follow that they're, guy. They're everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and that guy turned out to be Cratus of Tibis, who was a major cynic philosopher, Zeno started studying with Cratus, and then he actually went on and studied with several other philosophers. He went to Plato's academy, although Plato was dead by that time. He studied with the Megarian school and so on and so forth. And about after 10 years later, he started teaching his own philosophy. And that philosophy was taught, in, Zeno had this notion that you need to teach philosophy in the marketplace where everybody is. Because see that at the time, many of the philosophy schools were actually meeting outside of Athens. You can still go and see the remains of the academy today or the Lyceum, which was Aristotle's school, or the garden, which was Epicurus' school. And they were all outside of the main the main city. You had to get there by either a long walk or by horseback. And that was on purpose. That was like you, you were supposed to be out. It's, it's isolated. Not everybody was welcome uh, in the school. And you had sort of some kind of criterion of admission. Zeno had this fairly radical notion that no, 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 philosophy has to be in, you know, discussed in, in the marketplace by everybody. And so he started teaching in a porch you know, with columns, which was called the painted porch. Uh, because he had a lot of paintings of mythological and historical scenes from, from Athenian history and mythology. And the word for painted porch in Greek is stoa poikile, and that is why Stoicism is called Stoicism, because it started being taught in the stoa. So that's the origin of, of the term. The basic idea of Stoicism is that we should live according to nature, by which the Stoics don't mean that we should run naked into the woods and, and hug trees, although there's nothing wrong with that uh, if you want to do it, but that's not stoicism. What it means is that, look, if the question is, how do I live a good life? Then you want to ask yourself, first of all, what kind of being you are? Because the good life for a human being might not be the same as the good life for, let's say, a lion or, or a plant or you know, anything or your cat or something like that. So you have to have an understanding of human nature. Human nature constrains our choices 
and guides our choices because there are some things that we naturally want and other things that we naturally stay away from. And those factors need to be counted in, in when, we, when we're talking about how to live our own life. So living according to nature doesn't mean to do anything, everything that comes natural to us because there's plenty of things that are natural and they're pretty bad for one thing. But it does mean that you can't just make up stuff as you go. You have to take into account the fact that we are a being of a particular kind with certain needs and, and wants and, and so on. And that is called a naturalistic ethics. It's an ethics based on nature. And in fact, it is common not just to Stoicism, but to pretty much all the Hellenistic schools. And even today, a lot of contemporary philosophers uh, have espoused some version or another of uh, naturalistic ethics, most importantly, arguably, a British philosopher named Philippa Foote, who a number of years ago published a book called Natural Goodness, which explores this notion that uh, our moral compass comes from who we are as a living species, as a species of organisms. You, you mentioned something along the lines of to be a good you know, person or, or being a good lion. This idea of, of virtue, which in ancient philosophy was often associated with excellence, and also a word, and, and uh, if I'm saying this wrong, please correct me, but arate, is that right? Am I saying that right? What yeah. does that mean? What is arate and, and excellence? And, and what, what was the kind of, how did that fit into Stoicism? Yeah, so uh, modern Stoics talk a lot about virtues, but the word virtue uh, comes from the Latin virtus, and virtus was, in fact, the translation of arete, which is the Greek word, the original Greek word. And as you said, it means excellence. And in fact, arete doesn't mean just moral excellence. It means excellence of any kind. You want, for instance, you know, if you have a knife in your kitchen, you want a knife that is an arete knife, meaning a knife that cuts very sharply you know, and does its job correctly. If you, arete doesn't apply only to human beings and, and objects, but also to animals, like a arete lioness, for instance, is a lioness who is very good at catching antelopes, because that's what lionesses are about, what lioness life is about. So, arete means that you want to be excellent at whatever it is that you do. Now, in particular, the Stoics, the Epicureans, and the Aristotelians, and so on, are concerned with the moral sphere. By morality, however, we should, we should make clear that the ancient Greek and Romans had a much broader sort of understanding of morality than we, than we do today. And I think they got it right, and we need to, to go back to what their understanding was. So today, if you're talking, if you bring up the words ethical or moral, People understand that what you mean is you're asking whether something is right or wrong, right? If I say, is it moral to perform abortion, let's say, just to pick a controversial topic, when the understanding is that what I'm asking is, is it, is it right or wrong? Is it, is it right to do it or is it not right to do it? But for the ancient Greek and Romans, morality or ethics had to do with social living, it means how do the question that ethics and morality were trying to address is how do I live in a human society? How do I become a better person? Of course, part of becoming a better person and interacting better with other people also has to do with answering questions of right and wrong. But questions of right and wrong are a small portion of that of that broader question. Literally, the static study of ethics is the study for the, for the ancient Greeks and Romans is the study of how to live your life. 
which, as I said, it does include, of course, answering questions of right and wrong, but it's not limited to it because it includes also things like what should my goals be? What should my priorities be? How, do, how should I rank my priorities? How should I interact with other people? How do I treat other people? And so on and so forth. Wow, that, that's great stuff. You know, so stoicism, and again, help me if I'm if I'm off, but stoicism fell out of favor. And I would say, was it roughly two thousand years ago when it fell out of favor? Maybe squelched by Christianity, the emergency of Christianity, and lately, it's been having a bit of a renaissance. And you've been kind of at the at the front end of this. What do you think is driving this newfound fascination with maybe a, a philosophy that's been ignored for roughly 2,000 years? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, you're right. Stoicism, as well as the other Hellenistic philosophies, went into decline with the rise of Christianity because Christianity was a totalizing philosophy or, or religion, if you will. Once the Christians got control of the Roman army after, under the Emperor Constantine, that was it. That was the beginning of the end for all other, other schools because they were able, the Christians were able to impose their will. In fact, it was a Byzantine emperor in, the, in 476, I think, that closed down the Plato's Academy, the last school that had been actually left, left standing. However... Those ideas did not go away. Hellenistic ideas did not go away, if the, even though the schools were formally closed and, and there were very few people that would go around saying, oh, I'm a Stoic or I'm an Epicurean. But for instance, in particular in the case of Stoicism, all of the early church fathers engaged with Stoicism because they saw the positive aspects, several positive aspects of Stoic philosophy. Stoicism emphasizes duty, for instance, moral duty. And Christianity took that on board very, very readily. Stoicism, uh, Stoic metaphysics is also very friendly to Christianity. The Stoics believed in something that they called the Logos. And the Logos mean is, is sort of a universal capacity to think rationally. They thought that the universe is, in, is uh, embedded with the Logos. Well, if you read the Gospel of John, it starts out in English with, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. And the word word is actually logos in the original Greek. So mm -hmm. the, the Christians just took that on board very easily. Not only that, but the Stoics believed that our moral compass should be organized around four cardinal virtues. And these are practical wisdom, which is the ability to deal with complex situations in, a, in the best way possible. Courage, the courage to do the right thing. Justice, which means treating other people with respect and, and with dignity, and the, the notion that we should do things in right measure, neither too much nor too little. Well, the four cardinal virtues were taken by the, by the Christians and incorporated into Christianity. Thomas Aquinas, arguably the most important of the medieval Christian theologians, listed seven virtues for Christians. And these four vir seven virtues are practical wisdom, courage, justice, temperance, faith, hope, and charity. So he tacked the three more typical Christian ones on top of the, the Stoic ones. So these ideas actually uh, permeated Christianity and they survived into the early modern period. Several of the most important and influential early modern philosophers like Rene Descartes or Baruch Spinoza were directly influenced by the Stoics. 
David Hume, all of these people were actually actually incorporated some of the Stoics ideas, which is one of the reasons why a lot of the Stoic ideas don't sound so alien to us today. Mm-hmm. Like when, when you start hearing about, oh, courage, justice, yeah, sure, that sounds right. Well, it sounds right because those, those things have been actually w- within our culture for the last 2,000 years. Now, you're right also that, of course, Stoicism is, is undergoing a sort of a renaissance of late, much more so than other Hellenistic philosophies. I mean, there are some people who consider themselves modern Epicureans, for instance, modern skeptics. I don't know about many more than Platonists. Certainly there are a number of modern Aristotelians, especially among professional philosophers, actually, who are interested in in the broad approach of virtue ethics, which all these philosophies have in common. But uh, in terms of public, certainly Stoicism is the one that has taken off over the last you know, t- decade or so. And yes, I've contributed uh, to it for the last seven years, take a, you know, give or take. But in fact, this the movement was actually started essentially in the 90s by one of the people that I already mentioned, Pierre Hadot in France, and then picked up by people like Don Robertson and Chris Gill and John Sellers in the UK at, in the in the in the middle 2000s. So you know I've been a little bit of coming in a little late in this and trying to do my part. But now why is it so popular? Well, I think for a couple of reasons at least, right? two or three reasons. First of all, Hellenistic philosophies uh, came about during a period of of major turmoil and political and social upheaval. You know, the Hellenistic period goes from the death of Alexander the Great and the collapse of the Macedonian Empire to the Battle of Actium in 31 BCE, which is where Octavian, the future emperor Augustus, defeated Cleopatra and Mark Antony, thereby starting basically the Roman Empire. That period was saw major political changes every few years. And so people felt stressed. People felt like things were out of control. The world was changing rapidly, and they had no saying into how the, the world was, was going to change. Well, guess what? The 20th and 21st century kind of looked like that. You know, we were facing major political upheavals across the globe. We're facing, you know, potentially extinction level threat from, from climate change. We're, now we are in the middle of a pandemic, which is supposed to be a one in a hundred years situation, but I bet it's going to happen a hell of a lot more often than that, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, people, and of course, last century, we just went through two world wars, not one, two, <laughs> right? So, yes, of course, people feel stressed and out of, and, and, and things like, feels like things are out of control. And whenever that happens, people tend to turn to two sources, either religion or uh, philosophy. And because it has been a sort of decrease in popularity of mainstream religions, at least, certainly in the West, even though we keep hearing a lot about evangelical Christians and Muslims and all that. In fact, at a worldwide level, those religions have been losing grounds, especially in the the Western world. And so you need something. You need some kind of framework. You need some, some kind of way of organizing things and especially some kind of way of coping with things. And Stoicism provides that. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I feel like that's what's happening. I mean, th- th- maybe there's a little bit of a vacuum, right? People are, are turning away from religion, and and I think you said it exactly right. What fills that that void? And I think things like stoicism are are stepping into that space. And and so let's stay with this idea because you're talking about this idea. You, you know, this is a podcast about doing hard things and mental toughness and that sort of thing. And so, how does stoicism? 
you know, how can it be useful in dealing with adversity and stress? And there's great, maybe modern examples. Admiral James Stockdale credits the, the Stoic teachings of Epictetus to help him survive being a prisoner of war. Quite stressful, right? Yeah. Nelson Mandela, another one in prison for what, 20 years. And, and he would credit Marcus Aurelius with helping him get through that. How does Stoicism help us face difficulties in life? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, I would also add the the start of cognitive behavioral therapy. In the 1960s, the early practitioners of CBT uh, were, in, in fact, directly inspired by the Stoics, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and so on and so forth. And CBT is the most effective evidence-based type of psychotherapy we have today. So talk about being able to deal with stress and anxiety and stuff like that. I mean, literally, one of the most successful types of psychotherapy did come straight out of, of Stoicism. Of course, it was then updated on the basis of modern research and so on and so forth. And also, CBT is a type of therapy. It's not a philosophy of life. Those are you know, different things because a therapy is focused on resolving one particular issue, such as depression or anxiety, not to provide you with a general view of how you should live your life. A philosophy is much broader than that. But one of the things that differentiates Stoicism from a lot of the other ancient philosophies is precisely this emphasis on practice. You know, Aristotle wrote a lot, a lot of interesting things about ethics and how to live your life, but it wasn't really into the practice at all. It's just like it's it's all theoretical and it's interesting, but it's very theoretical. On the other hand, the Stoics, and to, to be fair, not just the Stoics, for instance, some of the, the skeptics at the time, in particular Plutarch, were also very practical. We have this, there's a book by Plutarch called the Memor the, the uh, Moralia, and uh, chapters six and seven of the Moralia actually uh, specifically include exercises for how to deal with major issues in life. Now, there are several ways in which Stoicism and, and similar philosophies can, can be helpful in terms of dealing with setbacks and stress and all that. But I, in my mind, arguably the most important, the single most important idea that Stoics have come up with in that respect is the so-called dichotomy of control which you find in Epictetus, although it goes back to much earlier on to the beginning of Stoicism. And it's also actually an idea that it's, uh, and to me this is interesting, is found also in other traditions. It pops up in 8th century Buddhism, in 11th century Judaism, and even in 20th century Christianity. In fact, some of your listeners might have heard it first in the form of the Serenity Prayer, which was written in 1934 by an American theologian. And the serenity prayer asks God to give us the uh, uh, wisdom to tell the difference between what we can change and what we cannot change, the courage to change what we can, and the serenity to accept what we cannot. Well, that's basically Epictetus' dichotomy of control. He puts it differently, but it's the same idea. The notion, the basic notion is that there is a very limited number of things that are really, as Epictetus puts it, up to us that is completely under our control. And those things that really come down to three. We, up to us, are, are our judgments, considered judgments, you know, the kind of things that you think about and, and make a decision. Our endorsed values, what we, what we think is good or bad. And our decisions to act and not to act. Okay, That's it. Th those are completely up to, up to us, meaning that if I decide uh, that a certain thing is good or bad, if I decide to uh, try to act in a certain way or not, if I arrive at a conclusion uh, after having thought about things, I cannot really blame other people. I can, I, I can say, well, you know, look, Ron told me this, or, you know, that's, that's an idea that I got, whatever. So long as I endorse it, it becomes my responsibility. 
You cannot force it on, on me. It is my thing. But Epictetus says, that's pretty much the only thing you control. Everything else you can influence, but you do not ultimately control. For instance, uh, let's talk about, since we're in the middle of a pandemic still, even though some people seem to behave like we were not, let's talk about health, right? Most people think that they actually have quite a degree of control of their health, but we don't, according to Epictetus. Why? Well, because in the middle of a pandemic, what I can do is to decide to wear a mask when in public. I can decide to, to maintain social distancing. I can decide to get a vaccine when it is available. I can do all those, those things. But those things are under my control. But think about it. Those are my judgments, right? Those are my decisions to act or not to act, wear a mask or not, vaccine or not, et cetera, et cetera. So those are up to me. What is not up to me is whether I get the, the virus or not. As a biologist, I can tell you, Viruses are sneaky sons of bitches. They, they might get you even if you do everything right. Of course, the chances that they'll get you or how hard they'll hit you is influenced by your decisions, right? The more you do the right thing, you act properly and you know, with, with judgment, with good judgment, the less likely you are to get the damn COVID. And if you do get it, you're less likely to end up in the ICU or, 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 or the cemetery. Nevertheless, it can happen. I just lost a friend a few weeks ago who was who did exactly all those things. He was mm. vaccinated, he uh, you know masked and stuff. But he was also very old, and he had a number of of you know complicated conditions, and you know the virus got him, and uh, and he's he's gone. So the notion is that we should focus on what is really up to us. And develop an attitude of equanimity toward what is not up to us. In other words, spend your energy making the right decisions because that's what you can do. That's what is really up to you. And then, however, be ready for the fact that sometimes those decisions will have good outcomes and sometimes they won't. And we are adults, not children. And one of the differences between an adult and a child is that an adult doesn't throw a tantrum every time the things don't go his way. Right. Most adults. At least most adults. I think that would be the definition <laughs> of an adult. Not just how old you are, but where you yeah. throw a tantrum <laughs> if things don't go your way. You know, I mean, uh, obviously, I've been talked about, talking about the pandemic and, the, you know, the, if the outcome doesn't go your way, then you literally could find yourself six feet under. But in a lot of cases, the outcome is not quite so dramatic. For instance, let's say you go for a job interview. It comes natural for uh, for us to focus on the outcome you know will i get the job but according to epictetus that's exactly the wrong focus because getting the job is not up to you it's up to whoever interviews you it is influenced by a number of factors that you don't control such as your competition right so what should you focus on well preparing for the interview you know the best way you can you know maintaining focus during the interview dressing appropriately for the interview showing up at the interview or at least try to show up at the interview at the right time not going going out drinking with your buddies the night before the interview because that's going to get in the way of a good performance and so on and so forth but then once you've done everything you could possibly and reasonably do then you have to be ready for the possibility you're not going to get the job because that's life. <laughs> sometimes you get the job and sometimes you, you won't get the job. But that should not be concerning you because it's like, well, if you've done everything you can, what else do you want to be concerned with? What, what else bothers you? And that to me is, is the most important bit of the practical bit of stoicism because it really applies literally to everything. 
There is nothing in your life that does not fall under the dichotomy of control. And of course, it's easier said than done. Yeah. Right? Because like, oh, okay, I shouldn't be bothered if I don't get the interview or if I go in the or if I don't get the job or if I get into the ICU, what do you mean I shouldn't be bothered? Well, it's not that you shouldn't be bothered, is that you should again act maturely about these things. You know, you expect that some things will not go well at some point or another in your life. And you prepare yourself for that sort of outcome and and how to deal with it. I mean, again, this is what a wise person and a mature human being would do. Yeah, I got to say, the dichotomy of control was probably, I mean, it was the thing that drew me to stoicism. And and somebody that used to be called, you know, I was somebody that was called a control freak. You know, I tried to control so much of my, my, I don't know, my world. And that's very frustrating. It's very stressful. Mm-hmm. It causes a lot of anxiety. And so when I first started to adopt this way of life, it felt a little scary. You know, you say we only control just a little bit. And yeah. and and to somebody like me that tried to control everything, that felt like, oh my gosh, you know, that that's that was a little bit scary and depressing. But once you kind of draw back into that and you say, okay, this is all I got. And so put all of my energy into this and and make that really quality. And then just forget about that other stuff. That, again, that was change, life-changing for me. It really helped me with my patience. I was a very impatient person. And so, again, but, but here's the thing. I, I think we all intuitively get that, right? We get this idea. We can't control getting that job. We can't control, you know, one of the things is, you know, our health or our reputation. A lot of people think they, yeah. they control their reputation. But once we let go of that, boy, uh, to me, it just it's very freeing. You get a sense of that as well? Yeah, I hear you. I mean, uh, I've uh, always been like you, a person who was a control control freak. And the result of it was that I would get frustrated and, and angry and all that sort of stuff when things wouldn't go my way. It's like, well, no kidding, would say yeah. Epictetus, right? Um, and, and look, it is, first of all, yes, you're absolutely right. It is liberating because all of a sudden you realize, you know what, actually what I control, it's very tiny. And so I can focus on that and be fine with the rest. You know, I learn to be fine with whatever else comes. I don't have to worry about whatever else comes because it's not up to me. And that is liberating. That's, that's, that's absolutely liberating. And one of the things that it does as a result is that it makes you more calm because you don't have to freak out every few minutes on, on not having control about this or that or the other. I think one of the pushbacks to that philosophy, and, and I think it's a little narrow-minded uh, to say this, is that mean I does that mean Mosby? I just give up? You know, I can't control that, so why don't you try? You know, that sort of thing. But that's not really what we're saying here, right? Not at all. And the, the, the interesting thing is that over these past seven years or so of studying and practicing stoicism, you know, I've developed a number of, of you know. Uh, being sensitive to a number of things that actually are, in fact, problematic in Stoicism. There are some issues with Stoic philosophy. That is not one of them. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, that one is, in fact, mo- the result of a you know, uh, lack of understanding of what the dichotomy of control actually is about. No, the, the idea is not that you don't care, therefore you're not going to act. You, you're supposed to do the best that you can in order to achieve whatever result you want to achieve. But the notion is that you then have to accept that sometimes things will not go your way. Cicero, who was not a Stoic, but was very sympathetic to Stoic philosophy, he was ancient Roman, you know, first century BCE lawyer and philosopher and statesman. He wrote uh, a book called On the, On the Ends of Good and Evil, which is a great title. And uh, in that book, he 
he talks, among other things, about Stoic philosophy, and he explains the dichotomy of control uh, in this way. He picks up on the, the metaphor of uh, an archer, you know, a Roman soldier who is about to, to try to hit a target, presumably an enemy soldier. And he's asking, you know, what is under the control of the archer? And the archer controls a lot of things, controls the time that he spends practicing archery before the battle. It controls the choice of the bow and arrow. It controls the care of the bow and arrow. It controls the focus up until the moment in which he is letting go of the arrow. But after that moment, he controls nothing. Once the arrow has left the bow, then you know, a gust of wind can come up, come up out of nowhere and completely deflect your best shot. Or the enemy soldier might actually notice at the last minute that you're aiming at him, duck, and you missed the shot. Now, is it the case that the, the soldier doesn't want to hit the target? Of course he wants to hit the target. That's the whole point of being an archer, right? But the soldier is also ready to say, well, I've done my best. Sometimes I'll hit the target. Sometimes I won't hit the target. And we see that what's fascinating to me is this is, these are ideas that again, 23, 2400 years ago kind of birthed, but we see this, we see this all over it in modern, like performance psychology. You know, when you look at athletes or anybody that's trying to perform, a lot of the, the wording is focus on the process. Don't focus on the outcome, focus on, on just doing that process well, because what, that's what you control that outcome, whether you win or lose is not under your control. So I, I see so many direct parallels here to, you know, again, modern, modern psychology. And as you mentioned earlier, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. I love Donald Robinson's book on that topic, by the way, it's such a, it's such a great way to look at how modern, you know, modern therapy was influenced by this, this philosophy again, from, from over 2000 years ago, a lot of those, those old, old guys got a lot of things, right. Which is, is quite fascinating to me that we see that we see the science back it up. So yep. th that's, right. that's, yeah. So let's, let's talk about this idea of, and, and I hope I don't butcher this primitatio malorum. And so this idea of negative visualization, you know, we're, it seems like we're, especially in the United States, we're kind of drunk on this idea of just being positive, always be positive, Yeah, right. you know, and sometimes always going to the, the extreme of toxic positivity and, and so the Stoics believe that we should actually spend some time visualizing the worst thing that could happen. Why did they say that? And is that, I don't know, is that useful to us in this, in this modern world? I think it is. Of course, it is an empirical question. Studies, there are studies on this because the premeditatio malorum, which literally means thinking about bad stuff happening, it's actually also being adopted with some changes as a technique within CBT, within cognitive behavioral therapy. And so we do have evidence that actually this thing does, does help. It won't help everyone under all circumstances because it's a technique. And just like any other technique, you know, it's, it may be good for some people and not for others. It may be good for some scenarios and not, and not others. But the general idea is to prepare your mind for the possibility of a setback. So, for instance, you could do a premeditatio malorum in terms of, you know, before going for a job interview. You can, and you could, you could visualize the interview and you could say, remind yourself, like, you know what? This, this may actually not go my way. And what am I going to do? How am I going to respond if that is, in fact, the case? So you kind of, one way to do it is you play a slow-going moving in your mind 
and of you at the interview and not getting the job, et cetera. And then you reacting to that sort of situation and you do that over and over. Why would you want to do that? You know, doesn't that just make you feel awful and that sort of stuff? No, it prepares you for the, for a negative outcome for which you need to be prepared. Because for instance, let's say that you're not prepared. You don't expect, you were so confident that you were going to get and, and go in and get the job that you get upset, you get angry, right? And then you start shouting. Well, that is not good because that employer, potential employer, is never, ever going to call you again if you react that way. On the other hand, if you react in a calm way and say, well, you know, I, I gave you my best, but I understand there may be somebody else out there that is better for a uh, position for this job. You know, maybe I'll do, I'll come up be- uh, better, better off the next time. Well, now, now the person who interviewed you is kind of impressed. Like, oh, holy crap, this person is actually you know, a reasonable, well-grounded and, and so on and so forth individual. So that's the notion. It's to be prepared. So you don't want to do it all the time and you don't want to do it gratuitously. I would do it if you actually are facing something that is a potential setback, that is a potential, you know, has potential negative, negative outcomes, then you say, okay, let's prepare ourselves. Now, I'm not good at doing... Um, sort of in visualization exercises. And so I don't do it that way. That's the way Don Robertson suggests that you do it. But I don't because I'm just not good. I get, if I close my eyes and start visualizing things, I get distracted and I, and I, and I start thinking about other stuff. So the way I do it is I write down, I in fact combine two stoic techniques. One is the premeditatio malorum and the other one is the philosophical journaling. So where you're supposed to write your own thoughts, especially using second person, instead of the first person so that you distance yourself emotionally from what you're writing as if you were writing to a friend you know so you're doing this so you're thinking this that sort of stuff there too by the way there is evidence from modern psychological research that writing journaling in a non-emotional detached fashion using a second person etc it's actually useful if is you recall, can I jump in? Is that how Marcus Aurelius did the meditation right yep. that's right okay. if you do the meditation he talks about you know you did this and you did that it's like what is he talking about? Uh, he's talking about himself. And yeah. the reason for that is because if you do it that way, you try to basically use impersonal language of, you know, objective analytic language, because the, the idea is not to relive emotionally, whatever the problem was, or the situation was, the idea is to dissect it so that you can learn from it. Right. So if you use the first person and very emotional language, you tend to relive the situation. Mm. While on the other hand, if you if you use analytical second person language, you tend to, it's easier to ste- step away from it. The same goes, by the way, for the preventive malorum. A lot of people feel that when they try it, that generates anxiety. Well, the reason it, it may, and the reason for that is because they are actually taking it at an emotional level. They're, they're kind of imagining how they would worry about thing and the thing or how they would be afraid of, uh, of whatever might, might happen. And that's not the right way to do it because what you want to do is the other, uh, the other way around. You, you want to distance yourself from the situation. That's why the visualization is supposed to be not from your own eyes, but from a camera behind your head so that you look at yourself from a, from a, from a distance, right? Because you want to take emotional distance from from what uh, may may happen so it's a, it's a technique as i said like everything else it might or might not work for for people you know i would i would say i was strongly advised to give it a try start with small things i mean some people that get into stoicism start out with the most difficult of them all which is the premeditatio malorum about their own death it's like whoa slow down that 
that's a that's the most difficult one you can do because obviously your own death imagining slowly and in detail your own death it's it's a, it may be an unsettling experience so start out with something much more you know easy like your favorite cup breaking for instance imagine that first and then then you graduate to more difficult things little by little it, it's funny you brought that up because that was going to be my next question memento mori right remember your death or remember your mortality and and that's another technique that the stoics use to to actually ponder and i'm i'm a believer and, and i i understand what you're saying that maybe that's not your first step but i'm a believer that to live our best life i think we should start as you know stephen covey would say start with the end in mind and say okay what is what does a good life look like to me and if we can kind of embrace that and not be afraid this is gosh this is a whole nother podcast i wanted to ask you about you know what's a good death you know what is that and you know, like Socrates, we can use, look at Socrates and say, was that a, an example of a good death? I mean, a lot of the, the history would say it is. And how do we face that with, with the calmness that, that Socrates did? Any no, thoughts not, on that? It's not easy at all, of course, but that is why Seneca, another Stoic from the first century, said that our own death is essentially what philosophy prepares us for throughout our life, that the, the ultimate test of character and courage is our own, you know, facing our own mortality. And, you know, what is a good death? Well, for one thing, I would say it's a death that it's uh, either at the very least non-painful and not, not, you know, not, not distressing, not overly distressing. You know, we all would like to do, to, to get to that point, but mostly it's a death that is digni- with dignity, dying with dignity. That is why I'm personally in favor, for instance, of physician-assisted suicide. Because And the Stoics would too, if they had that concept at the time. The Stoics actually do say that there are certain circumstances under which it is perfectly okay to commit suicide. And they were uh, happy to help their friends commit suicide if needed. There are several examples of a number of Stoic uh, philosophers who committed suicide usually by starvation in because they were frail and old and they couldn't function anymore. They couldn't do anything for society anymore. They couldn't help their friends and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, at that point, you'd say, okay, I'm, I'm going to quit. I'm not going to wait until the very last minute and cling to every second, even though there is actually, in fact, you know, I, I'm, I'm reduced to a, a walking corpse. There are other reasons for the Stoics why suicide is acceptable. One of them is, you know, Seneca himself committed suicide on the order of the Emperor Nero. And one can argue that that Socrates committed suicide for political reasons. I mean, he was condemned to death by the Athenian state, but he could have actually gotten out very easily. He could have escaped and his, his friends were bribing, had bribed the guards. He could have moved to another city. He refused to do so. And at that point, that becomes a suicide. You know, if it's your choice at that point. So a good death, I think, is one with dignity and ideally also one that is not painful. Although the Stoics would, of course, say that dignity is far more important than lack of pain. And the Epicureans would say the other way around, <laughs> lack of pain is the most important thing. So, but the thing is, often we would not be able to try. Now, I mean, ideally, uh, a good death is one that you choose your the moment, the the means, and everything. Great, but a lot of us are not that lucky. You know, a lot of us are going to die of a disease or a heart attack or a car accident or whatever it is, and you don't get a choice. More importantly, you don't know when it's going to happen. Right. So we have obviously statistical expectations, right? Sure, sure. Like, oh, well, I got another 20 years to go or something. Well, now you, you don't know that. No, uh, no. You hope you're going to have another 20 years. And, and, you know, statistically speaking, you might. But in fact, you might die today. 
for all for all you know. And that is now all of this sounds, of course, very morbid. It's like why why are even we even talking about this? And American society, Western society in general, but American society in particular is very reticent to even consider talking about death or looking at the dying and things like that. And I think that's a bad idea because why would you want to con- talk about it? Well, for two reasons. Number one, the one that we've been, been discussing uh, so far, which is getting ready. Right? It's a test of your character, so you better be- get ready for, for that test. But number two, as you were in, uh, suggesting a minute ago, is because... There is a flip side to all of this, which is very positive. And that is, all right, one of these days I'm going to have to die. Not now necessarily. So what am I going to do between now and then? Mm, there There's you go. One, of, one great bit in the, in the discourses of Epictetus where he says, so it looks like I'm not, going to, you know, I'm not going to die today. So I'll think about death later on. But on the other hand, right now it's lunchtime. So what are we going to have lunch? You know, that sort of stuff. And so it is actually a positive. There is a positive flip side to that, to that coin. And that is, you want to ask yourself, once you admit your mortality and you accept your mortality, then the next question is, great, so how are you going to spend the time between now and then? We're going to have lunch. It, yeah, what is it? Exactly. What is it that is really <laughs> important for you? What, what is it that is top priority? You know, one of the, with, with my friend, uh, Greg Lopez, we wrote a, a book called uh, A Handbook for New Stoics, which has a number of exercises for, for Stoic practice. And one of those exercises asks you to write down activities that you've done this week, let's say, and then rank them according to the following criteria. First of all, is that something that you would be doing the last day of your life? If you knew that that was the last day of your life, would you be doing that? And then second, is it something that improves your character and that makes you a better person or not? And if you fails both of those tests, you might want to think about it. You might want to reduce it. Like, you know, I, I, I bet that a lot of people wouldn't be on Facebook in the last day of, of their lives, for instance. That's a good point. Be, you know, wouldn't be answering emails or wouldn't be, what would we do? Well, it turns out we actually have answers to that because psycho- modern psychologists have done research on this. And people do not regret not having spent enough time on social media. They do not regret, you know, not having made more money. That's, that's perhaps a little bit more surprising, but that's one thing that people do not regret. What do they regret? They don't regret having engaged more in meaningful projects and things that were meaningful to them. And they regret not having spent more time with friends and family. Those are the two big regrets. And the Stoics would say, duh, <laughs> exactly. And, and meaningful projects, by the way, often, almost, almost invariably, are projects that involve doing something for other people, right? as opposed to self-absorbed yeah, projects, yeah. right? So, you know, meaningful project is not necessarily, you know, build the, the best model airplane that you can build or, you know, something like that. that that's fun. That's something that you could do for, for fun. But it isn't the kind of project that you get to the end of your life and you say, hey, look at me. Yeah, the major yeah. thing that I did in my life was to build an airplane, you know, model. Like, no. But if you say, you know, what I did in my life was to be helpful to other people. I had a career in uh, teaching or a career in, you know, some kind of other helpful sort of profession. Or if you didn't have a helpful profession, you spent a significant amount of time, you know, helping people in other, in other ways. And that doesn't mean, this doesn't have to be, you know, a big deal. We're not talking about saving the world, you know, on a yeah, daily yeah. basis because very few of us are in that sort of position. It may just simply mean trying to be a, a, a nice person, 
to the people that know you, you know, your colleagues, your friends, your your family and, and your children and so on. The, even that is makes makes the world a better place. You know, I one of my my role models is my adoptive grandfather I grew up with with my adoptive grandfather, meaning that he was not actually related to me, but he adopted my brother and, and I. And he was one of the most wonderful person I've ever met. And, you know, he didn't know anything about much about, you know, philosophy. He was not a religious, particular religious person. He certainly didn't do anything to change the world. But boy, he spent a lot of time taking care of my brother and me and, and, and his wife, who was my grandmother. And was that a good life? Hell yes. This is the kind of life you get to the end of it. You look back and you say, you know, yeah. that was that was not worth that was that was not wasted. It was. It he, was he, didn't, he didn't change the world, but he changed your world. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And so yeah, I mean, that's a. I think that's a good takeaway, right? We don't have to be Nelson Mandela or Mother Teresa or or whoever. Right. That's great if that's that. It's great if you can. Sure. Yeah, right. if you can pull that off. But I think we can do small things throughout our lives to to make an impact, and, and yeah. so I think that's a good. Marcus Aurelius explicitly says something, like, and he was an emperor, right? He, he actually had the power to change the world. But in the in the, in the, the meditations, he says, "Do not wait for Plato's Republic, but make any change, however small, because it is important." And you know, not waiting for Plato's Republic is like it was his way to say, "Don't wait for utopia. Don't wait for things that no. are not going to happen." Right? Just make whatever it is, whatever change, positive change in the world it is that you can make. Because that's going to make a difference. Absolutely. Massimo, I could keep doing this for a couple hours with you. This is a lot of fun. But before we get to our signature last question, what's going on in your world right now, Massimo? How can people maybe get in touch with you, work with you? Do you have any books in the... Any any new books coming out? What's going on? Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, the the place to get in touch with me and take a look at what I'm doing now is a uh, site called philosophy as a way of life dot blog and it's it's basically a repository of everything i do all my articles are linked there or my podcasts or my interviews all, all sorts of stuff what am i doing i'm a, finishing a book a new book the title of which is the quest for character it will be published next year by basic books and it is it takes inspiration from the story of socrates and and his friend alcibiades alcibiades was this incredibly flamboyant, very handsome, very rich Athenian statesman who, however, made a mess of his life despite being a Socrates student. And so the question that the book explores is what does it mean to have a good character? How do we develop a good character? And especially, how do we make sure that we have politicians and statesmen and generals who have a good character because literally our society and life depends on, on that. So, so that's going to come up next year and then after that we'll see i'm gonna be on sabbatical in 2023 so i i'm thinking that is going to be another book project there but i'm thinking about it outstanding and i think that that book that you're writing sounds pretty uh timely for uh i don't know for history so i i would agree with you i think we need more leaders of character right now all right let's go to our last question massimo if your game and i know this is always a this is a tough question it's a vulnerable question but what is your greatest failure and what did you learn from it a long-time relationship that I had years ago was arguably so far has been my my largest failure and the reason for that was precisely because I was too controlling I was you know into controlling everything and that turned out to be a disaster and it was largely my fault and you know relationships when they don't work it's never entirely somebody's fault but in that particular case it really was 
And it took me years to learn from that experience because initially I did not acknowledge the fault. I said, what, what do you mean control? Nah, that's not, that can't be it. It, was, it wasn't me. But in fact, it was. And uh, it took me years to reflect. And stoicism eventually brought me to understand that better. So now one of the things I learned is to let go of this notion of control. And another one is that there are better ways to you know, build a relationship with somebody. And now I'm happily married with my wife. And so she's benefiting from that mistake because things are actually much, much better. And, you know, I mean, you, you always make new mistakes at some point or another in, in life. So I'm waiting for the next one to, to, to come up. But that one was certainly the one that I considered the, the, the worst. And luckily, at least I learned something from it. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.